and welcome to the Dice Are Screaming. What <laughs> was that? A yodel or a howl? That was a howl. A yowl? No, I got we're not going to go with the yowling again, are we? Oh, uh, <laughs> well, hey, welcome. Um, I'm Randy. I'm Mike. Yeah, and we're the Dice Are Screaming podcast. So welcome. We're starting our show off right with a little bit of whatever that was, howling, I guess. Um. Well, expect no less from the inept sorcerer's patron of oh. gaming podcasts. <laughs> indefensible of the indefensible. That's us. <laughs> right. So, hey, uh, yeah, our last episode looked like it did pretty well. Historical fiction. So, Yeah, and I'm glad people appeared to like that one because, frankly, I, I felt like it's an, un, an underserved genre. You know, it, it gets left out of the discussion so often when people talk fantasy fiction and science fiction. And here's this whole zone of wonderful material that just does not get the love. And, man, I, I really enjoyed In fact, there was so much more we wanted to squeeze in. But the considerations of time were very cruel. Well, you know, we try to keep it down to an hour, uh, not only just for our sake, but for your folks' sake, so. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I could synopsize historical fiction books all day. Yeah. I'm not kidding about the all day part. But, you know, uh, I did get the uh, little uh, picture of Ricardo Montalban from the Saras and Blades, so I was happy to find that. <laughs> yeah, the, you know, color clip of yeah, uh, the original, the Saracen Blade movie, uh, which I it may have been that I just saw it on black and white television when I was a little kid. Oh, yeah, we but, can talk about, let me tell you of the days of yore. <laughs> you had black and white TVs? Yeah, we were happy for it. No, I, yeah, a lot of uh, the smaller TVs, you know, we were still in the era where they were kind of still transitioning from to full color. Yeah. You know, and let's just say that if a small leftover TV was available for kids, it was always the oldest, clunkiest model, uh, which meant that, you know, a lot of us wound up watching TV on a little black and white TV that it didn't matter if the show was in color upstairs for mom and dad. You know, like dad was watching the news and if, unless you felt like watching the news with your dad, you better go downstairs and watch something on black and white television. So <laughs> uh, it it was a nice attempt for its time period, but there was it was kind of hopeless to capture the entire breadth and scope of the Saracen Blade in film. Uh, wasn't likely going to turn out well. Well, you know, it, it was like a lot of things. Don't know. Uh, it was an attempt at the time to use what was... Um, available. Um, we talk now about, oh, Hollywood's just repeating comic book movies. Well, yeah, but, you know, Hollywood is always mined from popular culture and uh, use literature and other sources to generate content. And, you know, but that's the way it went. Well, I wouldn't be so upset about mining popular culture, but, like, I think it's pretty well established that like, I'm perpetually furious about remake culture. Where, like, well, oh, yeah. it's the 87th item in this franchise of movies. Like, for the love of God, you know, just pay someone for a new idea. Yeah. Just once. But we already own this. Yeah. Oh. Well, Tired unfortunately, we we do live in a, in a, a different age that uh, at least comic books are being used. So, you know, I don't have too much. I have enjoyed that part of it. Uh, the rise of Neil Gaiman's, uh, you know, various properties has meant that I've gotten to see some terrific film adaptions. Uh, Seth Rogen's treatment of Preacher, uh, very irreverent, but not inept. Okay. It was fun. I, I know that it didn't stick right to the absolute precise details of the comic book, but I'd never expect that from any kind of like serialized or film treatment of a beloved comic book. I never expected perfection. So I went in with an open mind and oh boy, what a wild ride I got. Uh, you know, perverse, hilarious. Uh, you know, it, it had 
very much the spirit of Garth Ennis's creation, uh, even when it didn't follow the text in the most literal sense. Yeah. So, yeah, and an ensemble cast characters. So, but getting back to the historical fiction, yeah. Um, we we tend to, we're still kind of working our way through this new format we're experimenting with. So I think one of the things we didn't put in there is I wanted to make more of an, a nod to like the Mighty Fortresses campaign for the source book for the second edition. There was also several others that had uh, more historical fiction bent or more historical bent. They had a Vikings book and a, uh, a couple others. But yeah, the Mighty Fortresses was basically during the time of uh, the Reformation, the Hundred Years of War during the Renaissance and all that. So, yeah, th that also makes a strong uh, case for some of our dipping into Robert E. Howard with Solomon Kane, even with its uh, supernatural elements that he, he sprinkled more in at the end. The vampire was in Africa was, was definitely a, a very dark turn of events where you had seen Solomon Kane adventuring before. Yeah, standing against an ancient evil of supernatural origin. I loved the series. Yeah, I love the staff that he got out of that, too. Yeah, I know. Staff is striking right there. But, yeah, that talks about where we're headed today. So uh, kind of wrapping up some loose ends from the last podcast is where we like to start it out and kind of get our sea legs under us. But uh, right now we're going to go ahead and uh, just talk a little bit about what we got coming up. We're talking about magic items today and uh, how they make or break a campaign. So we got a lot of uh, stuff to pull from that. that oh, wonderful. yeah. You know, this is a meta topic and it is incredibly gamer relevant since like even today, uh, the changing adapting role of magic items in different systems, you know, there's a wild card element like it can make or break. It's, it's one of those core portions of fantasy games, all of them, uh, and even games that are non-fantasy have, you know, allegorically, you know, similar things, you know, items of extreme interest, uh, you know, extreme sci-fi tech, like that, that crazy alien weapon that you don't know how it works, but you know it is awesome. Hey, the concept is present all over the place. But the impact it has is also worth some examination. Yeah. Not to mention, why? Why do we love them so much? So, yeah, it's coming up. All right. So uh, before we get into delving too deeply into that one, well, let's turn our attention to what the future foretells. And for that, we go to the Astrogalomancer. Yes. Gaze into the dice. Oh, all right. Well, the Astrogalomancer has gazed into the future through the dice, and the results lead him to next week's discussion on player oppositional defiant disorder. Oh. Those awful, awful moments when, for whatever reason, sometimes good players go bad. You know, like they have a terrible week. But there are also people who, like, they did not come to negotiate. Oh, <laughs> they yeah. They came to destroy. <laughs> when you've got a player who might as well be Heath Ledger's Joker. <laughs> so we're going to be talking about that little nightmare and some of the peripheral issues surrounding it. Yeah, and different shades of it. I mean, yeah, we're going big on... And what the... are the coping methods? You know, what are some of the ways to mitigate this? Or, you know, like, if there is a means by which to move back from the cliff. <laughs> right, and how... To deal with it without going too meta, how do you deal with this type of uh, where a player doesn't know what they want to do, but you show up with prepared adventure, maybe a store-bought one or one of your own mind, and then they don't want to do that. They want to do something else. So you shift gears and, you know, this is kind of, it starts big, but we want to focus on, on several solutions. And yeah, the uh, ultimate one is, well, if they just don't want to play the game that's being played at the table, maybe this is not the table for them. But yeah, we want to kind of avoid that one because that's the ultimate. That's the big that's the big kicker right there. That's your equalizer. Yeah, you can, you know, go find another table because it doesn't seem like we're going to be able to work things out. It doesn't have to be always adversarial, but it sometimes does. Nonetheless, 
Um, that's what we're going to be talking about next week. So hopefully you uh, guys uh, tune in, our folks. And uh, yeah, so I guess uh, that'll do it uh, for our look into the future. No fist porkus. <laughs> we will kind of break uh, the fourth wall. You can't see it, but the dice we're using. Uh, have a fist on uh, the, you know, the six on this six-sided dice is a fist, and the six on the other six-sided die is a wolf. So uh, the two together, should we happen to have dual sixes, we shall discuss Fist Borcus. And if you don't know what we're talking about, Google it. Yeah, feel free to look it up. But Fist Borcus is out there waiting. <laughs> it could happen. We it just don't happen. know when. As long as the Astrogalomancer is in play, Fisporcus is an actual risk. Yeah. So, uh, all right. Well, I guess we'll turn to our uh, gaze to the Action OGL News scene. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Action OGL News. Here, bringing you all the news that's fit to print. I don't know. <laughs> uh, we'll talk about stuff. All right. And uh, using those dice, those are Battletech dice. And uh, those are my uh, House Steiner and Clan Wolf dice. But uh, if you're asking, like, well, what's that got to do with the price of tea in China? Well, I'll tell you. Uh, we're talking about the Kickstarter for Battletech Mercenaries. Catalyst Games just and, kicked that off. And... Oh, boy. <laughs> I, honestly, you have to look at it to believe it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's up to – we're just sitting here watching it go up continually. It's so. almost to 14,000 backers, and it's past – 3.7 million dollars in backing so wow okay that's and and how long has it been since this opened i think just two days yeah this is the second day yeah stunning performance okay yeah 27 Clearly. days to go on this so you got plenty of oh, time yeah. to get in on this this is not a last moment like okay there's only a few days left no, this this has got some time to go, and clearly the desire is there. Battletech mercenaries. Yeah, this one comes with uh, some a little bit of swag. Uh, you get your choice in it, but you know one of the miniatures that's featured in the box set is the Grand Titan, and if you don't know what the Grand Titan is, oh boy, it makes the Atlas look like a plush toy. It just, <laughs> yeah, the Grand Titan alone is like, oh yeah, that's the thing. Um. Yeah, plus, you know, several other mechs, and they're starting to now include more uh, vehicles and uh, craft. they got some VTOLs. Uh, you might call them helicopters, but also jump tanks and hovercraft, as well as uh, uh, more uh, affectionately uh, familiar mech slippers or mech tanks going on out there. So looking pretty good uh, overall. You know, this Mercenary is, uh, pack is also going to come with uh, several expansions. They've got uh, Clan Cavalry Star that you can choose from, Intersphere Assault Lance, which uh, includes some other rarities, and a Recon and Scout and Hunter Lances, which include all new tanks. So, And, of course, they got the salvage boxes out there. So you receive uh, anyone selecting an Intersphere Lance as a part of reward will receive a Mercenary Salvage Box equal to the miniatures count to a Clan Star. So you don't know what you get. It's kind of a blind pig in a poke. But yeah, the box set for this and the Kickstarter is just phenomenal. Uh, it amazes me still that Battletech, after all these years, still has the ability to pull in these big numbers. It caught me off guard, too, I admit. Look, and this is not a, it's a person who is in any way hostile to Battletech. Uh, I, you know, absolutely am excited to see that they've been having a resurgence. Uh, what I'm saying is that I underestimated the strength of that resurgence. I had not gauged this as like having that much clout. Uh, I was happy for it just the same, but wow, what a showing for Kickstarter. Okay. I, and they've got a variety, the per usual, uh, typical of Kickstarters uh, done by like fairly developed companies. Uh, this one has a variety of tiers from which to approach. Uh, and you know, the recruit level uh, and the veteran level are kind of the sweet spot. You know, yeah. at, at 35, uh, it was 35, 35 for the, the recruit level, which gets you the beginner's box set and a couple other swag items. And 80 for the veteran. Those are those are your sweet spots in the middle. 
Uh, and then beyond that, I mean, there there are actually some very substantive additional items. Yeah, they've got a retailer level, which is always a good time. Yeah. So, so there's no FEMO. There's no fear of missing out on this one. If you didn't, if you don't get in on it, yes, they will uh, be out in stores and available. Yeah, this it's is, time shall come. But you're getting your first dip at this, and you're getting what you want right off the bat. You can also add on to this, so that's kind of cool. So if you want some of the other swag items, but you don't want to go uh, large to get them for free, you can just add them on to yours. So that's kind of cool. So, yeah, good good luck with uh, Catalyst Games. They've been doing a really good job. And when we talk about um, the Hollywood remaking everything, yeah, this is a good example of how to do it right. And, uh, yeah, also on X and OGL News, uh, we talked a little bit about the D&D movie last week. So, um, uh, yeah, it, it's looking like, um, yeah, it's going to be out pretty soon. So grab yourself uh, some advanced tickets. This is definitely one where you want to watch it in an audience, I think, rather than I'll just catch it when it comes on streaming. Because I think like a lot of movies, uh, we were just talking about this earlier in the week, like Weekend at Bernie's is kind of... It, it, yeah, it's a, it's not aged well. Okay, let's put it that way. But if you had just watched this on uh, a VHS at the time, and it's just you and you know you're you're lonesome, not as much funny as it is with a bunch of your friends or going to a whole theater and listening to everybody just crack up at the sight gags and the goofiness that was that movie. Yeah, it, I was going to say that uh, there are a great many movies that are very funny in their own right, uh, but the experience is greatly magnified by the company you keep at that moment. Uh, see it with friends. Yeah. If you're going to wait to see it in streaming, don't just wait and see, watch it. So gather your uh, gang together and get yourselves on, <clears throat> get to yourself some goodness in this movie. Because this is one of those that, yeah, I think it's good. And, and going over hype it, it's at this point, it's doing just fine on its own. Uh, getting inertia forward. We were always, as we were saying last week, uh, having the release date and the teaser trailer like a year before it would even come out was kind of like, ah, man, what are you trying to do here? But I definitely see where they're going. And there's a lot of strengths to this movie. I think that um, going forward, it may get other franchises like Battletech. Yeah, some airtime franchises. Like all of them should be put on alert because, like this, this is kind of the case that proves. Okay, if this works out well, then we may very well be looking at a gaming renaissance as uh, a wide variety of different genres. Yeah, find you themselves chain Netflix quality film material. I mean, if you could do the BattleTech uh, inner sphere conflicts on like Netflix or uh, Hulu backing. I mean, that's, there's a lot of content there. I mean, if you look at it compared to Dune, yeah, okay, so it's a lesser vehicle. I get that. But oh, sure. I also say that there's some high drama and there's some moments here. If you can get Hollywood to kind of turn its attention towards the gaming experience, some people may not like that. But I say this, that there's good content to be garnered from it, and it's done right. And they, I think it's finally gotten through. You can buy an IP or the rights to something, and you can end up like the first Dungeon Dragons movie, a literal... It's uh, a pig yeah, in a can. It's it, just literally like you could tell that nobody on that movie had a lot of fun with anything. <laughs> they were there to get as you know, get done as quickly as possible and get paid uh, to get out from under the obligation. Uh, that doesn't have to be the future for other gaming properties anymore. We now have an environment where, and this brings us back to what I mentioned at the very beginning, you know, our my continual complaint about the lack of new material being drawn from, uh, you know, it, it, there's such a desire to keep going back to the same wells over and over again. Well, here is an like literally an untapped oil field. Okay. Gaming has so many wonderful, different games, different genres, different settings, uh, different stories, you know, different backgrounds, and it is literally a storyteller's dream come true. So people are starting to buzz about that. The success of this uh, most recent movie, should it manage to push its way into franchise land, 
it's going to mean a keener eye being cast in the direction of a wide variety of game properties. Uh, and it opens the door to a lot of material that has never been done before, yeah. which is a thing I monumentally approve of. Not just because like, oh, hey, they're finally doing stuff I like. I would be happy just on the basis of, oh my God, you're, you're going to do something that hasn't been done 32 times in 10 years? <gasps> oh, be still my freaking heart. I don't want the 17th iteration of a thing that you know worked well in 1982. I just want to see something that makes me engage because I don't already know how it begins, how it goes, and how it ends. Get some new stuff out there. That, man, you're like, that's my hill and I will die on that. I think, I think that's a good position to take. I think it's looking at how they seeded so many... Uh, references through the movie, referencing um, the Harpers, the Red Wizards of Thay, and they're just alluding to that in the kind of same style that, like Marvel, the Marvel Cinematic Universe started to kind of nuance other organizations like Hydra and Shield right from the get go. Yeah, and uh, this is. I I don't want to issue a spoiler warning because it's not a true spoiler. Uh, it does not tell you anything about like the precise events of the, the movie itself. So we're not, I don't think we're wrecking anything for anybody, no. but they have carefully placed tidbits that you might think, well, why even bother to mention it? If it's not really relevant to this particular story, it will be pay attention. That's like they're, they're laying the groundwork and placing the foundations for future material and wisely done. So I, I highly approve, which it indicates that they had their plan in place at the time that they were constructing the first movie. Uh, and so the future material, minus whatever alterations are made as like this unfolds, uh, are already planned out. They have an idea of where they're going with this. So yeah, have confidence. That, that's, that's reassuring because a lot of these things, like even the original Iron Man was kind of, they didn't know if this would take off, how it would work, and they didn't. They had kind of an idea, but later it would come to be that, like, when they started putting together the Marvel, the Avengers, the uh, telling of the Avengers coming together, they had to tell tell you who Thor was. They had to tell you who Captain America was, and that had to come together at its own pace. And I think that that set a precedent for this but i don't want to get too far into this because we're talking about gaming stuff but i think it's relevant to the fact that like eric mona is talking about that now people are starting to come towards paizo and asking about so you got any more of that uh fantasy role-playing world building stuff that's uh being done in that dungeon dragons movie because i would like some <laughs> you know and i'm pretty sure like battletech and some others could definitely uh benefit from that as well so it's kind of odd that like we had games like call of cthulhu which pulled from literature and that literature has spawned movies as, as well as other explorations oh certainly that genre <laughs> although for comedic value uh you know, <laughs> look up the movie cast a deadly spell oh with fred ward yeah uh, where magic has become commonplace and it's and the name of the detective is lovecraft yeah so yeah i mean these are not like faint homages they, they're pretty heavy-handed with the right and it, it's kind of coming around that where now like gaming is being the source for new movies it's interesting because it's we've obviously been influenced by so many movies and to make us uh better game masters or play something that we see on screen so it's a good time um so we're gonna wrap up our little segment here on the landing on the markets uh, icv2 if you're familiar with that uh, and they just did a uh, top five uh, role-playing games uh, sales from fall 2022 from september to december and these charts are based on interviews with retailers distributors and manufacturers so no surprise here Dungeons and dragons still number one uh, pathfinder making a, a big appearance moving way up and I'm pretty sure going into next quarter's uh, report, you're going to see that even a little bit better. But yeah, they're number two, uh, 5E OGL with the Cobol, Darrington Press, and all the others. Yeah. MCDM. Uh, 
And Vampire Masquerade number four. Uh, not a surprise there. Good to see that game going on. Uh, been thinking about uh, rolling myself up a uh, La Sombra because they're part of the Camarilla now. So. <laughs> La Sombra. La Sombra, yeah, the shadows. And Transformers RPG, which to some people are like, hey, I didn't know. It what was we do in La Sombra? Stays in La Sombra, yeah. What we do in the shadows stays in the shadows. So either that or just get another Bruja. Who was number five there? Uh, Transformers, the RPG. See, that was the outlier. That was yeah, the one yeah, I wanted to was... mention before we round out this section is that like this has made quite a little splash for itself. Now I know that like the the list does not give you the scale, the difference right. between Transformer, the RPG sales, and D D over in the number one slot is pretty vast. And we're talking orders of magnitude here. But it's refreshing to see you know, like the the little the little engine that could. Working its way up the hill. Yeah. Uh, you go, Transformers, the RPG. Hey, I wasn't the biggest fan of the Transformers because I had kind of reached a certain age. Uh, but yeah, I wasn't for, for my younger brother's generation, that was huge. It was a, that was a terrific thing. So I'm hoping that people are out there gaming their hearts out, having a lot of fun with that right now. Yeah. And, you know, uh, people like Larry Dottilio, who started out in gaming, uh, made his trend and he worked his way into comics. He was one of the big writers in uh, G.I. Joe, uh, Babylon 5 as well. Oh, my Transformers. So, yeah, the Transformers movie when that uh, first came out, uh, my brothers and I have the dubious honor of being like uh, the only people who cry oh. watching the Transformers movie. Uh, and it, to like, this is a kimono opening moment. All right. Uh, okay. Uh, my dad was a warthog driver. He, he flew yep. uh, the A-10. A-10. Yeah, A-10 Warthog. So the, the A-10 Warthog scene, uh, you know, my brother is in this movie that is like, you know, action uh, developed from a children's show in the 80s. You know, and he's, he's watching that and they have that scene. Uh, and because our dad had passed, like he just like had tears in his eyes. And he's like, I'm the only person in this theater who's crying for this scene. Everybody else is going, yeah, awesome. Well, but yeah, the rest of us, like the, the other two brothers who did not see it, like in theaters at the time, were not any different. I mean, just, you know, we, we can't see that scene without going, oh, that would have been awesome. With <laughs> I want to watch this with dad. Uh, yeah, I still have the same reaction to Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow, which was not a popular movie, but it was based on the magnificent pulp serial movies yeah. of the era. And Dad saw those in theaters in the Upper Peninsula many, many years ago. This was like oh yeah, we, we should we definitely should uh, bring that one up. We yeah, talk about uh, pulp movies. So write that one down. Yeah, classic pulp. It'll that'll be on the docket. Uh, the incredible importance of classic pulp. Yeah. All right, folks. We'll be back after these messages. After these messages. Yeah, we'll be right back. So stick around. Hey, welcome back. Yeah, so, hey, we're ready to tear into the subject here, I think. I'm ready and raring to go. We've been talking about this for about a week now. Yeah, we did discuss in the past treasure a very long time ago in the, the misty reaches of memory. Mm. Uh, there were some episodes dedicated to treasures. Mm -hmm. That's a little bit different. In this, we're looking at the meta nature of the magical item. Well, yeah, we've also uh, bandied about with game balance and, and how you should stock and seed magic items throughout there. I think uh, we were talking during the break, we, you, uh, you have a rule about one magic item for every two levels per player character. I feel like that is a good average. Yeah. One permanent equipment piece of like enchanted gear for every two levels uh that's not an absolute hard and fast rule circumstances can shuffle that here or there mm -hmm. but you know the temporary the consumable uh items that are likely to be used up and move out of their grasp yeah you can have plenty more of those uh, but they they shouldn't be toting around a large quantity of permanent equipped items that are heavily enchanted uh, until they're dramatically high level. 
Well, and this depends on various editions and what games you're playing. Like some games can support a, a tolerate a higher presence of match guns than others. And so we're going to get into that right now. And we're just going to talk that the topic is, of course, the match guns can break or break a campaign. And of course, too many, too little, they do have an effect. If you're too stingy with a match gun, you're going to have problems. Uh, some especially the early editions, the first and second editions, depend heavily on players getting their hands on a match item at some point. But how many? Well, too many is too much, and that should go without saying, but we're going to look here. Oh, but we'll say it. Right. We're going to just, <laughs> for, for the fact of saying it, like we're going to go back to the Caves of Chaos. I, I want to pause just before we kick off here and mention the enduring love of the magic item. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. Let's, From the, all right, let's, the first let's, inception of the game. Yeah, okay. Yeah. The, the very, we're talking like pre white box set chain mail. You know, this was already a thing. Yes. The idea of an enchanted weapon or piece of armor uh, or an item that had a mythical background. So many of the magical items that we are familiar with from Dungeons and Dragons are in fact drawn from mythology. Uh, and some of them based on like the famous swords of kings, you know, I want a sword like Excalibur. And so they had to create a bonus to explain that this was, this is no ordinary sword. This is an awesome sword. So we will, like all of its roles, will have a plus one. Okay. Or a plus two at the very highest level. Yeah. And that was the early inception of the game. Well, that was an instantaneous hit. And that's what I wanted to mention here is that mm, okay. there was a visceral primal reaction from players like, oh, my God, that's so cool. I got to get one of those. Um, <laughs> Where do you get them? I mean, well, this, you got to find them. This is like the first time somebody put butter and salt on popcorn and they went, oh, I think we got something. here." Yeah, I think so. D&D began this process. Okay. Right. And where do you get these items? Well, you get them from adventuring. Or you can kill somebody who has one. So that started a whole other thing that was yeah. kind of outside of the scope. But <laughs> I push him into the pit and douse him in flaming oil. And then after he is sufficiently you know, crisped, and I'm sure that he can't get back out, uh, I poke a spear down there and finish him off. Uh, now, <laughs> with him taken care of, I crawl down there and I take his magnificent plus two sword. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the competition level was high. So obviously at some you point... You could do that, but... You, they opened the doors a little to a wider variety what, of magic Where items. would you normally find one? Well, you would have to go search for one. And searching would mean adventure. And that's where I think it starts. Now, also, since we kind of went a little on the... Uh, met on this already, let's talk about the artifacts. I think one of the big enduring legacies and the problematic items, and we will revisit this later, but I'm just going to start on this, was the artifact list. I know it made a big impact on me when I first read the DM guide. Yeah, who wants just a sword plus one when you can have the sword of costs? Oh, yeah. Uh, or, you know, like the invulnerable coat of armed. They came with stories attached like places you've never heard of and things you've never imagined, each one with this you know background that made you connect to that item in a way that like, uh, uh, you know, sword plus one's pretty cool, but uh, yeah, you know, it's just not that exciting once you've had the sword of Goss. I would say that dwarvish lords. Oh yeah, the actual hook. Yeah, the actual dwarvish lords. But I think uh, we'll go back and also say about that time in the early dragons, and I'm not just talking the. Uh, double-digit 50 or 60s. Even going back into the early uh, 30s, Ed Green once started a little article that he would submit pages from the mages. And sometimes he would detail oh. uh, magical items, swords, or pieces of armor and helms. I remember in the 70s, there was the one uh, around the 70s issue, not the year, but uh, around the 70s uh, series of when they were doing the publications, he had one where he detailed like a dozen swords from the realms. Yeah. Or nine swords from the realms. And each one... Ajatha, the drinker. Yeah, and they all had that same artifact level treatment. Yeah, despite not being truly artifacts. They had unique quirks, things that were not standard like abilities. Uh, I mean, they might indeed have a few of the familiar 
abilities of intelligent or unusual swords, uh, but they tended to have qualities to them that you would not normally, you wouldn't be able to draw it from a handbook. You, this had to be originally crafted. It had to be handwritten. They were marvelous. They were because incredibly Because of the history, well it, the, the lore, the, the deeds that were done with them, where they were last seen, where they were lost, where they might be rumored to be found. You know, like this one hasn't been seen in 300 years yeah. since it was lost, uh, you know, in, in the previous owner was known to have traveled to these lands, uh, but the precise nature of their death and the loss of this sword remains an unknown. Uh, so fill in the blanks, the rest of the blanks yourself on how did it get in this dungeon and how did it wind up available to this player? And I think that's the height of where Magic Items makes a campaign. Oh, yeah. And so having to kind of preface it, and we will visit where... I, I approve of that technique because it also lowers the crazed desire for artifact-level items. When you have a sword with great character, uh, with personality, uh, something unique that people have not seen before, uh, it is more desirable in some respects than a problematic artifact. And I, I had that happen in a game my, I was running in Lansing where... The sword didn't really have like a magic bonus. It qualified as a magic weapon. Uh, it required no care. You know, it was always sharp. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was unbreakable. Like, you know, uh, what was it? Uh, I, I forget the... Uh, uh, there was something correlated to that in the game. But, you know, it was not breakable. And then its last quality was that when called, it would jump... To its wielder's hand. So if it was laying over there on the ground or had been taken from you and was sitting over there, you know, in a, in a, a alcove, uh, you know, if you shout its name and hold out your hand, jump, and your sword comes when you call. Uh, guy loved that sword. Like many levels later, he acquired a plus two weapon and he was like, all right, I'll use the plus two if I have to, but but for now, I, I just really want to have my sword. The sword with no actual bonus to hit or damage. He wanted that one. <laughs> well, yeah, and that's one of the big problems yeah. is that, you know, it, it comes from D&D &D precisely, but it's also been magnified in role, or, uh, on MORPGs, you know, like, okay, I'm wearing orange pats, a pants of the fox, and now I find crimson patch pants of the badger. Well, I guess those orange pants of the fox are just flying off, and I'm wearing <laughs> the crimson badger pants. Rides again. No, I yeah. The you upgrade. know that you have to upgrade, and so the upgrade has been one of the banes of magic. And I'm going to talk about where I think that recently I've seen it done. I've also would also point to uh, Pendragon, the role playing game, with its use of very low powered badge items. But uh, I just want to say is that, you know, yeah, a sword given to you by King Arthur, would you not use that? Yeah. If you're riding in the van, you know, if you're charging into battle, why would you not have that out? Uh, well, it doesn't have any particular bonus, except it gives me bonuses to standing and uh, it, courage. And, yeah, it gives you a lot of bonuses that just aren't to damage and to hit. It, yeah. Value is hard to assess. It, different players value different traits. Right, and and that one game was a very trait-driven game, so obviously that's, you know, a sword given to you by King Arthur. Yes. For services rendered. I will wield it always. So The sword is a great gift, my king. So, yeah, you have different ways that games. different games have approached magic items and treasure, even though technically there's not many magic it, magic items. I believe that was the, green, the Adventures of the Grey Knight in that one where you get at the end, uh, Arthur gives you a sword for services rendered. Ah. And, you know, it's like, you know, any character foolish enough to sell this will be scorned by other knights in good standing with Camelot. Yeah, of course. Why would you even... That it sits on your mantelpiece? I can understand during times of peace, but times of conflict or need? Yeah. Well, that and the pride alone. Uh you, you should be wielding it in battle. Now, uh, there are other systems. Uh, an example of a slightly different treatment of that uh, 
Oh, who am I thinking of here? It's Earth Dawn. Yeah, Earth Dawn. Uh, the way it. in which magical items were, you know, brought into being had much to do with the heroic acts that you undertook during the course of the campaign. Yeah, like Barlas's dagger, which was used to kill a horror in a last mm -hmm. desperate moment. It has taken a life on its own. You can find standard magic items that uh, adhere to the plus one or plus two. Box of butter spiders. Yeah, yeah, the butter spider box, which you place a lump of uh, churned lard into it, and you close the lid, say the magic words, and it becomes a small spider. And uh, you take it out and place it on somebody, and it heals a wound. Yeah. Now, completely bizarre, like, I, nobody likes spiders, but, you know, apparently this one you will like. <laughs> I have arachnophobia, severe. Uh, no, you'll like this. Trust me. This this, this is going to work out just fine. No, uh, the way in which different games have approached the concept of the magic item widely varies uh, from, you know, insane rarity to downright commonplace. Yeah, and the more you invest in those items in Earthdawn, the more powerful they become and you unlock certain abilities. And you had to perform quests. It, you learned more about the background of the item. And if you perform certain quests or actions or deeds with them, they unlocked new powers. And I think that was a really good idea. And it's it's resonated with a lot of gamers, in my mind, that have experienced it. Yeah, they've harvested that uh, for their own campaigns. I mean, and to some degree, the concept of attuning to an item in the more fifth edition variant of uh, yeah, D&D. It has, like, it shows a uh, kind of respect and appreciation for the concept that, uh, you know, it is, these are supposed to be items that are fairly special. Uh, right, and, you know, um, one of the things is the sword that you started with, you find the first plus one sword. You With Pathfinder 2nd edition, you can keep that sword relevant all through your adventuring career. And I thought that was a good nod. But we're going to turn to the uh, topic where a lot of old school gamers seem to get hung up on is the rarity of magic. Items. And I think that's where me and Mike have uh, a similar idea, but we approach it from different in different ways. Like the number of magic items, what I was used to from playing B2, which was my first real turn at DMing. That's what I use, even though I had B1. I kind of liked B2 because it was just action-oriented. You know, it's like, oh, there's monsters in those hills, and they need a beat. Get out there and do it. <laughs> well, yeah, and you'll, you'll get people who, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say you'll get some people who pose as old school. Oh. Like, they want the chops, okay? They, they want the, you know, like, back in the old days, we knew that these were rarer than hen's teeth, and they just literally throw the stuff all over the place now. You obviously really weren't there. Yeah, so... Because if you never played B1 or... Uh, you know, B, yeah, B1 has like 30 magic items. You're only supposed to give out a couple. Island, uh, 20. Yeah, if you if you didn't play these, then I suppose you would believe that... You're like, oh, yeah, there were no magic items there. I won't even talk about Temple of Elmolino. But, oh. yeah, so the oh. Caves of Chaos has got 64 numbered areas. So, let's see, there's three plus one shields, two plus one axes. Um... <laughs> Let's see, Wanted Paralyzation, uh, two scrolls of protection from undead, which you need. Uh, two suits of plate mail plus one, plus a staff of healing, a snake staff, a sword plus two. And we can just go on. There's others. But another Mondo thing. Mondo treasure. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's a lot. <laughs> and that's just the magical items. We're not even delving into the fortune uh, that lurks below there. Of course, you got to live to enjoy it. Right. But also in there are a lot of consumables. And I think this is another thing that uh, I think is inherent, and this is where they make or break a campaign, is a lot of people tend to hoard particularly valuable consumables. And that's because some in the early edition of the game, you might find a potion of frost giant strength or, or uh, giant strength. It could happen. Even though the adventure you're in is perhaps a lower level than that item would normally be seen in, it was a thing that happened. And man, you know, if you were like level four and you got your hands on an item that was that impressively powerful, you were saving it like only for the most special of special occasions will I break out this item. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this so is for the grand boss fight. And so you would keep it, and rightly so. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. But the fact that 
what when is the situation to pull the pin on or pull the cork on that potion and quaff it? That's the part that kind of sometimes gets lost in that meta of I got to preserve this because it's going to be useful later on and I don't want to squander it on something useless. I think that's um, fifth edition, some of the other ones that started to get away from that where, yeah, drink your potions of healing. Don't try to save them. When you need them, need them. Use them. Well, and here's a piece of DM responsibility, okay? Uh, if you are doling out consumables, uh, they're not often going to be needed unless you have placed the characters in circumstances where their resources and available spells have been diminished enough that they need to make use of those items. Now, if you're not going to put that much stress on them, if you're not going to put them mm -hmm. in situations where they're under the gun, they're they're low on power, and they got to use up some consumables to make it to safety, if you're not going to do that, then be mindful of how many temporary charge or single-use items you release into the game. So either curtail what you're putting into the game or make sure you work those players so that they're putting those materials into play. Right, and it's, Just a, saying. it's a tough balance because what is too much, what is too little? Well, here's the thing. If it's not... If consumables are being handed out and players rightly value them, and but then they never find the appropriate time to use them, and then they're dead, you know, literally the oh, well, this guy has uh, thirty potions and a uh, wand of lightning. Yeah, I know, embarrassing, right? <laughs> so, if they're that player and they don't want to end up like that guy, then they need to start understanding that. Yet, these as a DM, you also have to understand that they have value and they have to be used. So you have to kind of balance an act of handing out items and encouraging players to use them as well as making this appropriate situations, letting them know that, Hey, sometimes these items, they may benefit you later, but you know, they are consumables and keeping the consumable track up, like besides just scrolls and potions, arrows and others encourages the players to kind of keep a track of this stuff, but not keep them so sacred that, sacrosanct and forbidden from use is that they become almost in of themselves unusable now i do want to mention that if you're in a module course if you are playing old school style and you are running a series of modules uh it is a potluck there are an awful lot of things that can accumulate quite rapidly if your party is working their way through many of the you know familiar uh, Dungeons and Dragons products from the early days, uh, you'll find that quite the excess does build up. <laughs> yeah, it does. Now, and that said, uh, our advice tends to work best if you're in your own campaign setting and you're doing the writing and creating. Uh, you have a lot more leeway to adjust things and tweak them back and forth so that you can hit that right sweet spot, that perfect zone of comfort. Uh, but running a module course, that's much more challenging. This, I recommend doing some editing work. And I know it's more homework for DMs. I know it's not a thing we enjoy. You know, we, we don't love doing that much extra paperwork. But we should do it. So that's more of a, oh, boy. Yeah, uh, you I'm going to have to curb a few things here because uh, I'm not releasing a plus four sword into a level five party. Yeah, and I'm talking about permanent magic items like armor and shields, which are obviously going to be upgrades. You know, um, having a certain wear and tear on armor has to happen as well. And I think first edition tried to do it with item saving throws. Yeah. But then it also kind of became kind of a dick move because adventurers get exposed to a whole lot of elements <laughs> they <really> during, <laughs> during a course of, a, of an adventure, especially when you get about the fifth or sixth level mark where they start getting uh, exposed <laughs> to more powerful foes. Yeah. Woe betide the party that gets fireballed by one of my NPCs or monsters. Okay. Right. You're going to have to make some saving throws if you fail. And I, I'm not uh, like, unless you got hit head on, I'm not concerned about your armor. However, the concussive force blast <laughs> and all of you ducking and covering and leaping to safety, your satchel filled with potions. Well, let's hope the survivors are, are the best. Yeah, but that also kind of leads to a certain adversarial level, I think. 
And it may have an adversarial relationship with some of the uh, DM and player proponents. Like, well, the players will start wrapping their potions in carefully prepared packages and dole them out very specifically in and indeed extra dimensional places. Right. And you know what? They get a pass. I mean, but yeah, but then then the it's it it becomes where those items that are meant to be consumable become enshrined and overly valued because of their fragility. I'm not really sure. I think it was the good intent, but it never really got to the core issue. And having too many consumables can be just as dangerous because you think like, oh, well, two potions of extra healing that that guy's carrying. He needs it. He, he gets beat up a lot in combat or fighter. Oh, sure. Um, yeah. One of the uh, mages or magic users is carrying a potion of, uh, Bring dragon control because why not? And I found it three adventures ago, and I just like you know I'm I'm hoping like that day's gonna happen. I'm gonna meet a green dragon, and he is totally gonna be my bitch. <laughs> right, you know, uh, hope springs eternal. Right, and you know, the, the, as Mike says, doing our homework is putting that into where it gets useful or something comes of uh, from the ownership of that. But nonetheless. It, the fighter just keeps collecting extra healing potions is not getting beat up because his armor class is too hot, so high that he can't be hit anymore. Yeah, there's your problem. You've created a twofold problem. And I think that it's not any fault of the game or its design, but it's just naturally inherent that players view the continual upgrade of magic guns as part of their character. And I think of the way that you play as well. I think that uh, fifth edition and the second edition of Pathfinder have addressed this in ways by your armor class just continually goes up, you know, as you level up and do other things with Pathfinder two that your armor proficiency levels up with you. So you 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 optimize your armor better. You know how to use it and use it well. That's a good way of getting rid of some of that. And while it creates the problem of yeah, their armor class continually goes up. Well, you know, the, the monsters also get much deadlier. I mean, you know, oh, yeah. And, you know, <laughs> it's not that big of a deal. And we have discussed the scaling up of threat uh, right. in the and, past. You know, that that is a genuine, like that one, it's not a uh, fault of or flaw of the game, much like the magic item scenario. It's more of a responsibility for the game master or uh, dungeon master. It's one of those things that comes with the job. It yeah, is an extra it, it burden, but eh. you're always going to have that no matter what. I mean, no matter what system you have, you're going to have a character that eventually gets to a certain level if they survive long enough where, of confidence that they're going to be able to uh, fight or pr protect themselves from a blow or incoming spell. And yeah. it makes a lot harder for the dungeon master than or game master at that point to make what they consider a fair challenge. And I'm right there with you, but magic items also, that's the break part of magic items. But let's talk about the make part where we talked about uh, the level items in Earth Dawn as well as some of the D&D artifacts. And I think that the problem is, is that uh, with the artifacts, you don't see them very often because there were so many warning labels placed on them. Oh, well, that end... It's it's a truth that owed to the nature of the game at the time and the difficulty of maintaining a table of people uh, and, and having the same cast of characters for a very long period of time. A lot of people had trouble getting a chance to use these items. Yes. Like, when would a campaign be high enough level to merit the introduction of something this awesome? And that was in a huge frustration to people. Is like, I'm never going to get a Staff of the Magi. Right. Uh, you know. Or, alternately, you found people who just bypassed that and went, yeah, like, I totally have a staff in a match. Like, Dude, you're level six. What the hell? <laughs> who is your DM? Money Hall? Mm -hmm. um, look under your chair. Everybody gets a staff of the match. Oh, boy. Uh, I go uh, there. But now mine isn't special. You know, like, well, that's what you get for having that at level six. <laughs> yeah, we can all agree giving a staff of power out of fourth level is just egregious. But maybe there is a way to give out a staff of power. At fourth level. And well, that's what I think is the key here. That's the evolution that has taken place in the nature of the magic item from a much more fixed approach to 
a graduating approach where powers are unlocked with the levels of the yeah, player. Yeah, once you're 10th old, now you get the ability to use the uh, uh, minor global vulnerability power. Yeah, it keeps getting better the longer you have. The first time you are able to cast shield once a day and light at will. Yay! That, <laughs> you give that to somebody at fourth level, the magic is just going to shake your hand. Well, I thank you. That's a great item. And then they find out, wait, what? At fifth level, I can cast uh, four magic missiles from it? Yes, a day. Four magic missiles at your discretion. Whoa. This thing keeps getting better. <laughs> so, yeah, the development... And I highly approve. I know uh, it's very traumatic for people to sometimes go through changes in the precise core mechanics or nature of items in the game. Uh, not so much for me. I saw this as a DM goldmine uh, because it helps to curtail the endless chase for better and better and better and better and better. Now you already have better. You know, your level goes up the awesomeness of your item goes up with you and you wind up not having these discarded, like, eh, I can't use that anymore. I found something cooler. Yeah, that old shield plus one, it, you know, that solved me, saw me through a lot of problems, but this shield plus two, this crom, this you can trust. <laughs> yeah, so. Uh, I love it. Um, I, I like also having uh, facts and quests become important, knowing the lore and the activity just not the attunement of the item, but knowing the lore and having to perform deeds to make these items happen to become more and more uh, effectual. Because I did give out that staff in uh, my Emerald Tower, Emerald Spire campaign to my wife. Uh, so she didn't understand like what was happening. Like The more pieces she got added to it from this rod, the more powerful it got. And so, yeah, so yeah, you can do that. But you need to base it to some type of locale or deed. Otherwise, some players just like, well, I'm just expecting something to happen at sixth level. Does my staff do something different now? No. Not yet. No. Well, you said yet. I know. You got to do something with it. Oh, yeah. The deeds of the tower unlocked this. Of delving deeper into the dungeon unlocked those powers in certain areas and rooms. There are earmarked for it. So having a plan like that makes it all worth the while and centers a campaign. That helps make a campaign. The artifacts in the first edition uh, Dungeon Master's Guide, and as well as some of the brown books, I think it was it uh, Eldritch Wizardry? Yeah, I think it was Eldritch Wizardry. I believe so. That had uh, the artifacts, and they had a list of variable powers, so somebody just couldn't uh, peek at one on a shelf and then suddenly know what the Axe of the Dwarvish Lords really did. Yeah, uh, the DM guy did it right, as we mentioned in a you know, like yeah, in one guy's campaign, it, one of its major powers cast earthquake once a week, and then next time you encounter that in a different campaign, totally different. It could be wildfire for all you know, and uh, you know, oh well, you know, what's the, every time you activate the earth power, um, you lose a point of charisma, earthquake power, you lose a point of charisma, <laughs> or in another guy's campaign, uh, when he did the wall of fire. Um, you lost two points from your strength for a day. <laughs> well, why does that happen? Well, you know. It is a powerful artifact. It demands sacrifice. Right. What do you mean it takes 60,000 gold pieces in gems and jewelry to activate this power? <laughs> I showed up with a million gold and like, you know, two months of play with this item. And I, I'm down to like, you know, 18 silvers. Did you not understand artifact? <laughs> so yeah, there's there's a lot of things. Some of it could be kind of amusing, you know, like, what do you mean I develop acne? <laughs> I'm already a teenager. You don't have to do this to me again. Yeah, that was something of an insult to added to injury. <laughs> User developed severe halitosis. <laughs> Sorry, Gary Scope. So yeah, the the idea that you want to use magic items in these artifacts to bring about something like having a it's been done before but the axe of the dwarvish lords you know could is the center point of a campaign that involves obviously some great um political upheaval or problems that the dwarves need solving and so the axe allows itself to be found that's one i've seen done several times in several ways 
But having some of the lower powered magic items like from the pages of the mages and the nine swords of the realms, as well as the sword you just talked about, there's a number of small things like that that can be done with magic items without much modification. True. That help make a campaign and make memorable magic items, like you said, handcrafted ones. They kind of make plus one or plus two swords kind of pale in comparison. Well, I did want to mention before we come to our close that uh, this is also a facet of games. Even when you remove the magic, okay, the better gear, the cooler, shinier thing. Yeah, Traveler. Uh, you know, whether it's in uh, Shadowrun, where it's, you know, like, I, I want a more awesome gun, you know, or uh, I want like the really high-end trench coat that only like the the people with a lot of loot can put their hands on. That's where I'm, I'm taking my money and I'm buying the best gear in town. Uh, or, you know, whether you're playing in an Old West scenario, you know, it, it's not the same. Uh, you know, like just having any old hog leg is one thing. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> having that pearl handled. There, uh, now we can be friends. Silver filigreed you know, uh, magnificent masterwork uh, that shoots a little straighter. Hey, the desire is there. And like, likewise, science fiction, like uh, Gamma World, certainly well, everybody yeah. had their hearts set on the better gear. The love of it is there throughout the entire game verse. Uh, wherever you turn, uh, the cool thing is a draw. The idea of yeah, like, in Traveler, it's more like getting not just necessarily better weapons, but upgrading your ship. Oh yeah, changing out uh, some of the uh, armor you might wear. You know, I'm going for my leather jacket to battle dress too. Okay, good luck. <laughs> yeah, you better have a lot of loot before you're you're, you're getting the battle the full battle gear. That's a big jump. Yeah, you. I've been saving all this time just so I could get battle dress too. Okay. <laughs> You're going to notice a different experience next time we play. Yeah, you will. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, and that, but that's entirely play, player driven. That's really not game master driven. You know. But yeah, finding a suit of battle dress on the black market. Uh, you know, the Imperial Navy uh, frowns on letting those out to anybody but the Imperial Marines. So yeah, yeah. But they always get all the cool stuff. Um, they have to rip open the hatches of ships and go in to shut down the engine core. And usually people aren't cooperative with that. Yeah. When it's devolved to the time that you have to send Marines on a boarding line to the other ship, negotiations are at an already tense point, <laughs> to put it mildly. <laughs> so, yeah, th that's why they get the big stuff. Um, but, you know, the love, the desire, uh, the, the desirability of better and better items is there. It's ever-present. It is a gamer trait uh, right harnessing it is the, so, is what makes the game make it work for you don't don't just let it run wild put, put a little time and a little thought in and you'll find that it reaps better benefits yeah and you know there's also uh the introduction of some with pathfinder is some things called rune stones where you can take the rune with a uh, prepared ritual off of an item and transfer it to another item or to the stone and then transfer it back to another new item. Ooh. Or, you know, take one that, you know, oh, I don't like this item very much, but I really like this sword I've been carrying with me for a long time and I want to give it a little bit of a boost. That's also a good way of solving that. So, you know, just because they come from games you may not play, you know, things can be taken and stolen from, as we like to say. Good DMs borrow. Great DM steal. That's right. So don't be afraid to, you know, uh, uh, pick and choose as you as your needs have you. But all right, I think uh, we we walked around that subject pretty well. We, so we've waxed eloquent about our love uh, and occasional hate of the magic item itself. I mean, exactly. it is it is both bane and blessing. <laughs> we'll cover cursed items some other, other day. time. <laughs> right, that's, that's what a DM jerk move. All right. Well, I think that'll do it for us. I want to thank you all for listening. And of course, uh, we're now Spotify for podcasters now. That dang old dang crap. Well, it's went to the and we missed electronic it. graveyard in the sky. Hey, uh, that's evolution for you. You know, yeah. It's a, <laughs> uh, there, there, uh, there are only two kinds of change: uh, swift and slow. 
and uh, uh, there is no other option. There's no like plan three. <laughs> okay, like you either experience swift change or slow change in this life. So, uh, despite the fact that we had great and abundant love for our original uh, home base anchor, yeah, original uh, platform. Like now, uh, we're doing it Spotify style. Yeah, Spotify is keeping more more or less the same, and they've added yeah. a few new features, so I can't complain. <laughs> I so, know, I like they've actually added a few little tweaks that I thought were uh, quite handy, actually. So bravo. It's our new home. All right. So, Hey, uh, thanks for joining us. And until next time, may the dice always roll in your favor. We're out. See ya.